so this reading is taken from 1 Kings, uh, chapter 21, starting at verse 1. Now Naboth, the Jezreelites, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them be Let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth, curse God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite which he refused to give to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Amen. So let's uh, read the second half of our chapter, 1 Kings 21, and verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He's now in Naboth's vineyard, where he's gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says, Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says, In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, So you found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
He says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city. And the birds will feed on those who die in the country. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner, by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Amen. May God's word touch our hearts uh, tonight. Now this this incident about about Naboth's vineyard, it actually becomes the catalyst for the delivery by Elijah of one of the most chilling pronouncements of judgment that we we come up against in the scriptures. I mean, you think of all the things that that Ahab had done. You know, we just read about that there. There was never never anyone like Ahab. The whole catalogue of incidents and, you know, the depth, the vileness of the stuff that he was involved in and how he led the whole of Israel into sin because of his devotion to paganism. And yet it seems to be that for all the things that he was responsible for, involved in, this is the one thing here that is highlighted. This incident here regarding the vineyard of Naboth that seems to be the final straw that breaks the camel's back. This is the final catalyst that just seemed to put things over the edge and Elijah is sent to deliver the message after this point. So what were the issues that really are kind of highlighted then in this particular incident regarding Naboth's vineyard that make it what it is? Well, there are are two things that I want to bring to your attention and we'll put the the first one up. It is the whole idea of, of inheritance as far as Naboth was concerned. As far as he was concerned, this vineyard was more than just a vineyard. This vineyard was his inheritance. Now, if you look down, you'll see, you'll see how he expresses himself. Um, you know, Ahab approaches him. He's got his eyes on this vineyard. It makes sense to him. It's pretty near the palace. Uh, he would like that for a, for a vegetable garden. 
And uh, he offers a price, a good price, no doubt, to Naboth. Uh, either that, or he can have another vineyard that, in fact, is even better than, than, than the one he has. But, but Naboth is not interested. You know, he's not, he's not going to sell, and he's not going to swap. And he's persistent in that. And doesn't matter how much um, Ahab seems to be persuasive, doesn't matter if the price is hiked up or how attractive everything seems to get, he's, he's holding fast and he's not selling. And the reason for that is his understanding of this piece of ground. For him it's more than soil and grapes and walls and houses. It is, as it says in verse number 3, the inheritance of my ancestors. Now, that means more than the fact that his, his grandpa had built, built the vineyard, you know, a, a generation or two before. You know, and he had all the kind of memories associated with that. It, it's not that. It's much more than that. Because the whole idea in Israel was, you see, the land was the promised land. This was the land that... All those years ago, God had said, this land that flows with milk and honey, the land that I promised to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land that they traveled for 40 years through the wilderness for, that eventually they entered into, was apportioned. It was parceled up. There were inheritances that were given to specific people. So if you get into the book of Joshua the last few chapters of the book of Joshua, you will get that. You will see how each tribe was given a particular portion of land, and it gives you the boundaries of them. It gives you all the details, all the geography, the ravines, the coastlines, the hills, everything that was part of a particular portion of land. So when Naboth looked at this, that's what he saw. It was his spiritual inheritance that he'd actually received from God. Wrapped up in that was, 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 was a lot of spirituality as far as he was concerned. It was a gift from God. And he wasn't selling that for any price. This was something that he valued in different terms than just getting a better vineyard or some dosh from the king. You see... This just escaped Ahab altogether. He, he didn't get that. This was off his radar. He, he saw things in different terms altogether. It just didn't come into the way that he looked at things. That's why he is so sullen. That's why he goes in the huff. You know, goes to his bed, won't have his tea, just behaves like a child. You know, he's the king. He thinks he can get anything. And yet Naboth, because of his conviction about his inheritance doesn't buckle and he's not intimidated by anything that the king can throw at him. I mean, this is, this is an interesting point. In fact, it's a very relevant point for us tonight. The whole idea of spiritual inheritance and how we value it and what convictions we have about it and whether we are prepared to sell it or not. You know, there were people in Scripture who are recorded who sold their inheritance. The biggest example is Esau. 
who sold it for a pot of soup. He's going to be the firstborn. And he thought, what what does this matter to me today? I'm famished. I'm about to die. You know, over-exaggeration, of course. But that's how he felt about it. And he sold it to his brother Jacob. And Scripture says about Esau that he was a profane man because he despised God's inheritance that he had given to him. Now, we, we have an inheritance. Of course we do. Peter describes how it's incorruptible and it's undefiled and that it fades not away and it's reserved in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God through faith unto that salvation which is ready to be revealed in that final day. We have a wonderful inheritance that God has for us. But that inheritance is not just a future inheritance. We have a present inheritance as well. We've been learning that in Ephesians, haven't we, in the morning. Those blessings in Christ that belong to every child of God without exception that we come into as as our birthright, as our inheritance as a child of God. All the blessings of the gospel, everything that is tied up in Christ That is my inheritance. The big big challenge for us is this. Are we going to be like Naboth? You know, and we're not going to be prepared to sell that off for anything. I was reading an obituary this week of of somebody I actually had met many years ago, only very briefly. Um, he, He had been an evangelist uh, in the south of Ireland and his uh, two daughters wrote, wrote his obituary and they, and they finished it off by quoting from Paul's words in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and it just kind of struck me probably because I'd been reading this when it says in the words of Paul which they applied to their father um, I, have, I have fought the good fight I have finished my course here it is I have kept the faith kept the faith I I think you could have written that over Naboth here he kept the faith He, he didn't he didn't trade it and so for us you know there is the example here of of this man and how he valued his inheritance there was a second thing though I think that's highlighted here we'll put that one up next uh, please and it's uh, it's this marriage that was made in hell between Ahab and and Jezebel Um, Jezebel it says um, towards the end of the passage in verse 25 was the one who, who urged on Ahab in everything that he did she was the the patron of of, of Baal worship in the land. And and she, of course, is the main instigator in the death of Naboth. You know, there's no doubt that she's the power behind the throne. You know, she's Lady Macbeth, isn't she? You know, he he seems so weak and so childish, you know, going to his bed and not having his tea and, you know, he won't give me my vineyard and all the rest of it. And, And she comes in and just completely takes control of the situation. He, he comes across as very weak, very passive. 
And she is just on top of all of this. Ruthless. Absolutely ruthless. Dishonest. You know, when she manipulates this whole situation, even with a veneer of religion about it, let's proclaim a fast. Let's say about Naboth that he cursed God as well as cursing the king. And she gets these two scoundrels and and gets them to lie publicly. And uh, the whole thing is contrived and And there, just like that, she's got the whole thing fixed. Naboth has gone. And and, and Ahab has his vineyard. On you go. I've got it all sorted for you. You know, this is a a terrible example of unrighteousness in, in leadership. An absolute abuse of position and of power. Absolute corruption in high places and it couldn't stand in further contrast uh, to the psalm that Ben uh, read for us at the start of the service Psalm 72 a psalm that Solomon the king wrote two kings in contrast and he makes that a prayer for his own reign for justice, endow the king with your justice, O God. The royal son with your righteousness. What would be an example of that in a king? Verse 4. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy and crush the oppressed. That's righteousness. That is justice. That's what Solomon prayed for. In fact, if you look down Psalm 72, it is a messianic psalm. It's more than just Solomon. This is about the righteous rule ultimately of Christ who will reign from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 8. That is true righteousness. What we have here in this incident couldn't be further from the truth. But something like this is a, is a reminder to all leaders, not just national leaders, but why don't we just bring that to ourselves here as far as the church is concerned and leadership within the church about the importance of example and of righteousness and how leadership is such an important thing because the church can sometimes become the mirror image of the leadership. You know, and, and you see yourself for good or ill in the things that develop as far as the church is concerned. And what we have here is, is a, an example that, 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 that is a salutary example to us of how things should not be done. In addition to this, the whole idea about Ahab's weakness comes out. Such a weak, weak man. Allow, allowing himself just to be turned in whatever way uh, by, by Jezebel. And it flies, of course, in the face of the whole structure of marriage and of leadership and authority in general that Scripture lays out for us. I mean, he wasn't showing any kind of leadership in his home. He wasn't showing any kind of leadership in his family. He wasn't showing any leadership in the nation at all. And what we have here is a reminder that we have to be strong in positions 
of leadership. Well, why is it that um, all leaders are told that they will be held accountable? It's, it's, the, it's the idea of, of accountability over the whole range of leadership, whether that be kings, whether that be church leaders, whether that be husbands at home, whether that be fathers in a household. God has established this kind of principle of, of headship and, and, and that is for people to take responsibility rather than standing back. But it's also about the fact that God will hold us accountable because he has put us in positions of leadership. And that is why it is Ahab here that Elijah comes to and denounces. And it's not Jezebel. That is why throughout scripture it is Adam who's always held accountable for the sin in the garden. And it's not Eve. It's because of the principle of headship. And that is why in the church, that it is elders who one day will have to give account for what they have done. And so we, we see the kind of solemnity of this kind of principle of, of headship and leadership that Jezebel just kind of desecrates here. Now I'm going to come now to the, to the final point, the main point, uh, which has to do with, with what is said to, to Ahab. These, these were the reasons, these two things. And, and now Elijah is sent by God. And uh, he comes right into the very vineyard of, of Naboth, where, where Ahab has gone to take possession of. And this is where he confronts him. And, and what he does is this. He delivers this denouncement that really hits home to the heart of Ahab. It really rocks him. Now this is remarkable because you think of everything else that had happened in the kind of um, symbiosis between Ahab and, and Elijah. You know, the drought and the famine for all these years hadn't shaken Ahab to this point. What took place on Mount Carmel hadn't really spoken to Ahab. He'd just gone blithely on his way. But what, what Ahab hears now from the lips of, of Elijah just absolutely chills him to the marrow. Because what he goes on to say here is he talks about what is going to happen as far as Ahab himself is concerned. And then he goes down point by point to talk about what will happen to Jezebel, his wife. And then he talks about Ahab's family, his sons. He talks about them being eaten by animals and being eaten by birds, that not one of them will survive. The dogs will lick up the blood of, of Ahab himself. Most horrifying terminology. And, and, and Ahab gets it. And, and Ahab thinks about that, and Ahab is absolutely shaken by a sense of the fear of God, which is the final point. The fear of God comes home to the consciousness of Ahab in a way that it had never done before. And, and he trembles. He trembles perhaps in the way that, that Belshazzar trembled when he saw the fingers of a man's hand writing upon the plaster of the wall. 
Perhaps he trembled in a way like Felix did before the preaching of the Apostle Paul when he, he reasoned with him about, about self-control and about judgment. And, and Felix trembled before the preaching of that man. And Ahab, he trembles as well. And the thing is this, that what takes place in Ahab's heart, it seems to be a genuine enough thing. It doesn't seem to be crocodile tears. Because God says to Elijah, have you noticed the change in Ahab? Have you seen what Ahab is doing now? How he goes humbly and he's dressed in sackcloth. And the word of God, and in particular the sense of the fear of God, had entered into his soul. You know, in our day and age, we, you know, we, we, we sometimes do talk about these things. Perhaps not in the terms that we ought to all the time. But sometimes we talk about what is described in Scripture the apocalypse, how the world will end, the fact that we will all stand before God, the reality of hell, the fact that there are demons as well as angels, the fact of that great malignant power of Satan, you know, the corruption of sin, the reality of all of these awful things. And you know, for the majority of people that we speak to, it's like a, it's like a Marvel movie. You know, it's just fantasy. It's almost like entertainment. They've seen all these things on the big screen and it's just water off a duck's back and it doesn't penetrate and it doesn't permeate and the sense of the fear of God hardly ever enters into people's hearts until the Spirit of God speaks to a person. I mean, the Lord Jesus taught that, didn't he? That when he, the comforter, the Spirit of God comes, among other things, what will he do? He will convict the world of sin. You know, that's, that's what we all need. We all need to have this sense of the fear of God, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. I mean, and that is true for our world at large, to think about that. But it's also true, in a sense, for us in the Church of Christ, to think about these things too. And there are, are examples of that that we have in Scripture. In general, you have Peter preaching in, 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 on the day of Pentecost. And, and the preaching comes with such power from God's Spirit that people are absolutely cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. What, what are we going to do about this? You get the man in 2 Corinthians and... Uh, and Paul has spoken about his sin. I mean, they were very liberal. They're pretty happy with themselves in Corinth. Their understanding of the gospel doesn't matter what I do. God's grace will cover that. And it was at the point where there was somebody in the church, and he had he was sleeping with his father's wife, and 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 they were quite happy about that. No problem. That's fine. The gospel accommodates all of that stuff. And Paul has to write to them and says, you know, you've got that wrong. You should have mourned because of this. And you, you really need to deliver that man to Satan. He needs to be expelled from the church to learn the severity of this condition. And that's what happened to him. 
And when Paul writes again in his second letter to the Corinthians, you know, this man has understood the point. The point has got home. He's been shaken by this. And what has he done? He has repented. He's changed his attitude and his ways and his behavior. And he's gone out of his way to demonstrate the reality of the change in his life. Because the fear of God had entered into his soul. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the principal part of wisdom. The main point of wisdom is to understand who God is and to fear him. And so this is what we have here. What a necessary thing this is to be convicted from our sins that we might realize our predicament and turn from our evil ways. That's what we should be praying for in in every service that we have and in every conversation that we have about the gospel. But just in closing, this incident may well have been the final straw, but thank God it was not the final word. The final word in the chapter is, is how he is humbled and how he responds and how Ahab reacts to all of this. Remarkable that this vile man you know, should be shaken in such a way that he was. And, and let's remind ourselves that the Apostle Paul says that if the worst of sinners, that's what he described himself as, could be shown mercy. That is an example and it's an encouragement to all of us that we too can, despite our background and our, and our activity, we can be shown mercy as well. You see, for all of um, Elijah's severity, the last word we have about Elijah is not in First Kings. Let's just remind ourselves about that. It's in the Gospels. It's on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's that conversation that he has with Christ and with Moses when they talk about Christ's exodus that he's going to bring to completion, to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And what Elijah has a grasp of is, you know, as the old hymn puts it, you know, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And that despite the the times that Elijah lived through, and despite his relationship with this awful man Ahab, there was the realization that, that Christ would go to Jerusalem and he would bring something to fulfillment that would be able to deal with the issue of the sins, not just of an individual, not just of a nation, but for the sins of a world. Such was the capacity of what Christ was able to achieve in his death at Calvary. This was the final straw, but thank God it's not the final word.